Section 21 of The Sainted Queens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. The Sainted Queens by Unknown. St. Elizabeth of Hungary, Chapter 3. The fervent charity of the dear saint towards man sprang, as well may be believed, from her ardent love to God. It was consecrated by unceasing prayer and led by frequent communion. At the holy sacrifice of the Mass, as she knelt in profound recollection, her hands meekly folded beneath her mantle, her ducal coronet and ornaments cast down before the footstool of the King of Kings, and her veil raised that she might behold his hidden beauty, the ministering priest beheld her surrounded by a supernatural light, and thanked God for having thus made manifest the interior glory of her soul. It was her practice to pass the whole night of Holy Thursday in prayer and contemplation of the Passion of Christ, and when Good Friday dawned, she would say to her maidens, This is a day of humiliation to us all. Let none of you therefore presume to offer me any token of respect. She would then dress herself in a peasant's clothes, and go barefoot from one church to another, mingling with the lowest of the people, who crushed and jostled her like one of themselves, and make her humble offering of a poor taper or a few grains of incense, as if she had been the poorest of the poor, thus doing violence to the royal generosity of her heart, on a day which she said was better honored by a humble and contrite spirit than by most lavish and princely offerings. An anecdote which is told by her chaplain, Berthold, serves to shew the scrupulous delicacy with which she watched over the slightest swerving of her thoughts and affections when in the holy presence of God. As she was hearing Mass on some high festival in the church of St. George Eisenach, she forgot the sanctity of the sacrifice, and allowed her eyes and thoughts to dwell for some considerable time upon the beloved husband who was kneeling by her side. Her heart swelled within her as she gazed upon his princely brow, and thought of all the noble and holy gifts so visibly impressed upon it. She was still indulging in this dream of human affection when the bell rang for the elevation. Elizabeth raised her eyes in deep compunction to the altar, and, instead of the consecrated host, beheld in the hand of the priest the crucified and bleeding form of the divine spouse, whom she had for a moment forgotten in the beloved presence of her earthly lord. She fell prostrate upon the ground before the altar to implore pardon for her fault, and remained there bathed in tears until the hour of dinner. The attendants dared not interrupt their lady in her devotions, and at last, finding that she did not appear as usual to receive her guests, the landgrave himself went in search of her, and said gently, "'Dear sister, why do you not come to dinner? Why have you kept us waiting so long?' At the sound of his voice, she raised her head and looked at him in silence, and he saw that her eyes were red with weeping. "'Dear sister,' said he in great distress, "'why have you been weeping so bitterly?' Then he knelt down beside her to listen to her tale, and when he had heard it, began to weep and pray with her. After a while, he rose and said to Elizabeth, "'Let us have confidence in God, sweet sister. I will be no hindrance to thee, but will help thee do penance, and to become still better than thou art.' But seeing that she was much too oppressed with grief to be able to appear at the banquet, he dried his own eyes and returned to his guests, leaving Elizabeth alone to weep over her fault. It was 1221, the year following her marriage, in which the dear saint was received into the third order of St. Francis, just then founded for persons living in the world. She was the first in Germany to assume a habit which has since been worn by many saints. After the death of her husband, she bound herself by a vow to a life of absolute poverty, chastity, and obedience. She has hence accounted the patroness of that later development of the original design of St. Francis, which exists under various modifications as a religious order, while St. Louis is the patron of the secular tertiaries. There was a deep sympathy between the holy patriarch and his royal daughter, and it has been noted as a singular coincidence that the date of her birth was the same as that of his conversion. The missionaries of St. Francis met with the fullest encouragement from the land ravine of Thuringia, who founded a Franciscan church and convent in her own capital of Eisenach on their first introduction into Germany, and chose brother Rodinger, one of the first Germans who embraced the rule for her own confessor. 
At the request of his friend, Cardinal Ugolini, who was afterwards to be the protector of St. Elizabeth on Earth and to write her name in the calendar of the saints, St. Francis sent her the old mantle which he wore as a pledge of his fatherly affection. I wish, said the cardinal, that, as she is full of your spirit, you should leave her a legacy like that of Elias to his disciple Elysius. Elizabeth received the precious mantle and the letter which accompanied it with the deepest gratitude, and always wore it when she had any special favor to ask of God. In the year following Elizabeth's marriage, some nobles of her father's court, returning from a pilgrimage to Aix-la-Chapelle, came by his command to Vortburg to inquire after the welfare of his beloved child. The landgrave received them joyfully, but was suddenly struck with a perplexing thought. The royal bride had already altered her wedding robes to what she conceived to be a more modest fashion, and there was no time to provide any more. Louis, therefore, came with a face of anxiety to her chamber. "'Dear sister,' said he, "'here are some of your father's courtiers come to visit us. I am sure that they are come to see what state we keep here, and whether you have a train befitting a princess. But in what array can you appear before them? You are so busy with your poor that you forget yourself.' You will never wear anything but those miserable old clothes which are a disgrace to us both. What a dishonor will it be to me if they return to Hungary and say I let you want clothes, seeing that they find you in so wretched a condition, and now there is no time to provide you anything befitting your rank and mine. But she replied gently, My dear lord and brother, trouble not yourself about this, for I am well resolved never to set pride upon my dress. Leave me to excuse myself to these lords, and I will try to treat them with so much gaiety and cordiality that they shall be as well pleased with me as if I had on the finest dress in the world. Then she went and prayed to God to make her pleasing to her friends, and having dressed herself as well as she could, went to join her husband and her father's messengers. She not only charmed them by her cordial and gracious welcome, and by the rare grace and beauty of her person, but, to the great admiration of her guests and the utter amazement of the landgrave, she appeared arrayed in robes of gorgeous silk and a blue mantle sprinkled with costly pearls. The Hungarians said that the Queen of France herself could not be more royally attired. When they were gone, Louis came in great haste to ask his wife how she had contrived to dress herself so magnificently. Elizabeth replied with a grave, sweet smile, See what the Lord can do when he pleases. The next year, 1222, Louis took his bride to visit her father in Hungary, by whom they were both received with great joy and affection, and soon after their return he celebrated, with great pomp, the marriage of his beautiful sister Agnes with Henry, Duke of Austria. As the guests were sitting down to table, they remarked that the Landgravine had not taken her place as usual, and declared that they would not begin without her. Meanwhile, as Elizabeth was passing from the church to the banqueting hall, she had seen a miserable half-naked man lying at the foot of the staircase, who looked so wretchedly ill and weak that she wondered within herself how he had been able to drag himself up from the town to the castle. As soon as he saw the landgravine, he besought her, for Christ's sake, to bestow an alms upon him. She said that she had no time to attend to him, and that, moreover, she had nothing left to give, but that she would send him food from the banquet. But the poor man besought her so piteously to give him something at once, that, overcome by compassion, the landgravine took off the costly silken mantle which she wore and threw it to him. He rolled it up hastily and disappeared. Elizabeth dared not enter the banqueting hall without a mantle, which would have been a grievous infringement of court etiquette, and returned to her chamber to recommend herself to God. But the seneschal, who had seen what passed, went and told it to his lord in the presence of all the guests. "'Judge, my lord,' said he, "'if what my dear lady the landgravine has just done be reasonable.' While all these noble lords have been waiting for her, she has been clothing the poor, and has just given her rich mantle to a beggar. The good landgrave laughed and said, I must go and see what she is about. She will come immediately. Leaving his guests for a moment, he went to Elizabeth's chamber. Dearest sister, said he, are you not coming to dine with us? We should have been at table long ago if we had not been waiting for you. I am quite ready to do your pleasure, dearest brother, said she. But where is the mantle you had on at church? said the landgrave. I have given it away, my good brother, replied she. "'but if you will permit me, I will come as I am.' "'Just then one of her maidens came into the room, saying, "'Lady, I have just seen your mantle hanging upon a nail in the wardrobe, "'and will bring it to you immediately.' 
and she came back with the mantle in her hand which the poor man had just carried away. Elizabeth fell on her knees to make a short thanksgiving to God, and then went with her husband to the feast. But while the bride and bridegroom and the rest of that fair company were full of careless mirth, the landgrave Louis was serious and recollected, pondering upon the signal graces which were lavished upon his Elizabeth. For it is plain, says one of her pious historians, that it was an angel from heaven who brought back the mantle, and that it was Christ himself in the form of that poor beggar who came to try his well-beloved servant Elizabeth, as he had before tried his servant Martin. In the year 1223, Elizabeth, at the age of 16, gave birth to her first child at the castle of Kreutzberg, a few miles distant from Eisenach, whither she had been removed for greater quiet from her usual residence at Wartburg. The infant son was baptized by the name of Hermann after his grandfather, and in the following year a daughter was born, named Sophia, the ancestress of the reigning family of Hesse. Elizabeth had afterwards two other daughters, who were consecrated to God in their cradle, and died in religion. It was the saint's constant practice, after the birth of each of her children, as soon as she was able to leave the house, to take her newborn babe in her arms, and dressed in a simple woolen garment, to walk barefoot by a steep and rugged path to the distant church of St. Catherine, without the walls of Eisenach. Carrying her child in her arms, like our blessed mother on the day of her purification, she laid it upon the altar with a taper and a lamb, saying, O Lord Jesus Christ, I offer this precious fruit of my womb to thee and thy dear mother Mary. Behold, I restore it with all my heart, such as thou didst give it to me, to thee, who art the Lord and the most loving Father, both of the mother and the child. The only prayer which I will address to thee today, and the only favor which I dare to ask of thee, is that thou wilt be pleased to receive this little child, bathed with my tears, into the number of thy friends and servants, and to give it thy holy blessing. When Elizabeth was about seventeen, she lost her Franciscan confessor, Rodinger, and at the request of the landgrave, who wrote to ask a pious and learned director for his wife, the sovereign pontiff appointed Master Conrad of Marburg, then apostolic commissary in Germany, to the office. He was a holy and learned priest who had steadily declined all the high ecclesiastical dignities which his noble birth, as well as his great merit, placed within his reach, to embrace a poverty so austere as to lead several historians incorrectly to assert that he belonged to a religious order. He was employed by the great Pope Innocent III on a special mission to suppress the heresies of the Waldenses and the poor men of Lyon, which were gradually finding their way into Germany. During the twenty years in which he exercised this arduous office, he shewed himself worthy of it by his unwearied zeal and the fearless confidence with which he maintained truth in the face of the great ones of the earth, when they too often lent the weight of their feudal authority to the heresies which indulged and fostered their evil passions. He sealed his faithful service with his blood, yet the church has not allotted him to the martyr's palm, bestowed upon St. Peter of Verona, who died about the same time for the faith, on account of a certain excessive severity which mingled with his zeal, and of which we find traces in his direction of St. Elizabeth. It was the direction, doubtless, best fitted to bring her to the high place in heaven which she so early attained. She might have been less saintly, or less early a saint, had a saint been her director. When the young Landgravine was told that she was to be placed under the special care of a man so highly esteemed for piety and learning, she was filled with humble gratitude. Poor sinful woman that I am, said she, I am not worthy that so holy a man should take care of me. My God, I thank thee for this grace. She threw herself at his feet, saying, My spiritual father, deign to accept me for your daughter in Christ. I am indeed unworthy to be such, but receive me for the love of my brother. Conrad was so much moved by this deep humility in so illustrious a princess that he could not refrain from exclaiming, O Lord Jesus, what marvels dost thou work in the souls which are thine? With the permission of Louis, Elizabeth made a vow of obedience to her director in all things not contrary to her husband's rightful authority adding to this a vow of perpetual chastity in case of his decease. She made these two vows in the hands of Master Conrad in the church of the nuns of St. Catherine at Eisenach. She observed her vow of obedience with the most scrupulous fidelity, an instance of which we have already seen in her strict abstinence from forbidden food at her husband's table. 
Conrad was most rigid in enforcing this obedience. On one occasion, he had summoned her to attend one of his sermons, to the hearing of which an indulgence was attached. She was at the moment receiving a visit from her sister-in-law, the Margravine of Misnia, and thinking that she could not leave her guest without discourtesy, she disregarded the summons of her director, who, in consequence, sent her word that he could no longer undertake the care of her soul. She flew to him next morning to implore pardon for her fault. He repulsed her at first with the greatest harshness, though she knelt humbly at his feet, and only pardoned her at last on condition that she and some of her ladies who had shared her fault should undergo a severe discipline. End of chapter 3 of St. Elizabeth of Hungary. End of section 21. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.